I'm Al Philreese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound Archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Huda Fakhradin, who teaches Arabic literature here at the University of Pennsylvania, author of Metapoesis in the Arabic Tradition, Brill, 2015, and the co-translator of Lighthouse for the Drowning, uh, 2017, and The Sky That Denied Me, 2020, forthcoming, whose translations of modern Arabic poems have appeared in all kinds of places, World Literature Today, uh, Nimrod, Arab Lit Quarterly, Middle Eastern Literatures, and elsewhere, whose book of creative nonfiction, A Small Time Under a Different Sun, was published by Dar al-Nada, Beirut, in Beirut, in 2019, and whose new book, The Arabic Prose Poem, Poetic Theory and Practice, is forthcoming, yay, from Edinburgh University Press in 2020, and by Amber Rose Johnson, poet, critic, scholar, hailing from her beloved Providence, but currently a Philadelphian doctoral student in English and Africana Studies here at Penn, whose work explores the intersections between experimental poetics, performance, and critical theory throughout the black diaspora, whose editorial projects include the exhibition catalog for Colored People Time at the Institute of Contemporary Art here in Philadelphia, and the catalog for Great Force at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Richmond, Virginia, and whose writing has been featured in Bomb and elsewhere, and who I'm delighted to say co-teaches with me the open online course called ModPo. And by Jacob Edmund, Professor of English and Linguistics at the University of Otago in New Zealand, who has published widely on many aspects of contemporary experimental poetry and poetics, including a new book published by Columbia called Make It the Same, Poetry in the Age of Global Media, an earlier study called A Common Strangeness, Contemporary Poetry, Cross-Cultural Encounter, Comparative Literature, and articles and papers on conceptualism in the Russian and U.S. avant-garde, on global modernism, on the geopoetics of the newspaper, on translation in a time of censorship, on the flaneur in exile, and who, I'm pleased to say is the curator and editor of Penn Sound's extensive Kamau Brathwaite page, which includes recordings dating back to 1973. Jacob, you came all the way from New Zealand. Not just for us, you're doing some stuff on the East Coast, but welcome. Thank you. This is your second time in the writer's house, I think. That's right, the second time. And when was the first? uh, 2012. Oh, a so, while ago. Yeah, it seems like yesterday. Mm. We connected then. It was great. It's mm. good to see you. It's great to be back. Huda, hi. Hi. Congrats on the new book. Thank you. And I'm doing doing a little bio profile research. I find out you have these essays, these what? Uh, creative nonfiction. Yes. They're a secret. <laughs> I know. I can't wait to read them. They need to be translated. Oh, uh, it's, they're in Arabic. They're in Arabic. Okay. Yeah. Well, I got some work to do then. Or I've got some work to do. Okay. 
Amber Rose Johnson. Hello, Al. Are you okay with that reference to um, Beloved Providence? Yeah, I love that reference. You, you, you're really, you're a Providence person. It's really, it's really in my blood, yeah. And to me, you're just providential, so it kind of works out. <laughs> Is that a Thank pun you. we're allowed to do? I'll take it. Okay. Well, today we four have gathered here to talk about a poem published in Kamau Brathwaite's book, Islands, which was published by Oxford in 1969. The poem from Islands we've chosen to discuss is titled Negus, N-E-G-U-S, and it appears as part six of a section of the book called Rebellion. We have just one recording of Brathwaite performing this poem. It happened at the Bowery Poetry Club in New York City on May 1st. 2004. So here now, from Penn Sound, thanks to Jacob, who curated it, is Kamal Brathwaite reading Negus. It, 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 it is not, it, 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 it is not, it is not, it is not enough. It is not enough to be free of the red, of the red, of the red, white, and blue, of the drag, of the dragon. It, 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 it is not, it is not, it is not, it is not enough to be free of the whips, principalities, and powers. Where is your kingdom of the world? It, 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 it is not, it, 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 it is not, it is not, it is not, it is not enough. It is not enough to be free of malarial fevers, fear of the hurricane, fear of invasions, crops drought, fires blisters upon the cane, it, it. It, it is not, it is not, it is not, it is not enough. It is not enough to tinkle to work on a bicycle bell when hell crackles and burns in the 14-inch scream of the Jap, of the Jap, of the Japanese-constructed United Fruit Company imported hard-sell telltale television set rhinocerously nuked, cancerously chewed, it is not, it is not, it is not enough. It is not enough to fly to Miami, structure skyscrapers, excavate the moonscaped seashore sands to build hotels, casinos, sepulchers. It is not, it is not, it is not, it is not enough, it is not enough to be free to be free to bulldoze God squatters from their tunes, from their relics, from their tombs of drums. It is not, it is not, it is not enough. It is not enough to pray to Barclays bankers on the telephone, to Jesus Christ by shortwave radio, to the United States Marines by rattling your hip bones. It, 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 it is not, it is not, it is not, it is not enough. 
it is not enough. I must be given words to shape my name to the syllables of trees. I must be given words to refashion futures like a healer's hand. I must be given words so that the bees in my blood's buzzing brain of memory will make flowers, will make flocks of birds, will make sky, will make heaven, the heaven open to the thunderstone and the volcano and the unfolding land. It, 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 it is not, it is not, it is not, it is not enough. It is not enough to be paused, to be whole, to be void, to be silent, to be semicolon, to be semicolony. Fling me the stone that will confound the void. Fling me the rage and I will raise the colony. Fill me with words and I will blind your God at at Atibon, Atibon Legba, Atibon Legba, Ouvri Bai pour moi, Ouvri Bai pour moi. Amber Rose, you've thought a lot about performance when you heard this for the first time. And I'm guessing that to prep for this conversation, you may have listened to this for the first time. What'd you think? What'd you feel? Um... It was my first time listening to this particular performance, and I was really captivated by the the steadiness of it. Um, he uses the word the word drag, and actually, as we were re-listening, I was thinking about the kind of drag that's in his voice, um, not just through the repetition, but on some of those words he lingers. There's almost a quivering in his voice. Um, it's almost song-like it's almost drum-like it's very sort of a ritualistic reading um and I was actually first listening to it with a lot of other sound and you have to listen very closely he's not being very loud so he's really pulling you into something that feels very intimate I think the Bowery Poetry Club mic had to be turned up which then made the recording fill with some ambient noise including a tiny bit of feedback and some sound from the bar I wasn't there that day, but certainly I was there in that period, and that's what happened. Um, Jacob, you've thought a lot and written about um, Brathwaite and recording. Yeah, that's uh, right. Can we talk about it for just a second as sort of a sound poem? Mm, mm. Well, it very much is, uh, and as uh, Sam Barros has already kind of alluded to, um, this poem in particular actually was one of the poems that first attracted me to Brathwaite's work, just hearing this poem and his performance of it. It's the opening uh, poem and his reading at, and in the Segway series at the Bowery Poetry Club. And I think you're absolutely right, Amber Rose, about the way in which he, he starts off very quietly in order to draw the audience in. You have to listen closely. You have to lean in literally, physically to catch what is being said. Um, and at the same time, he's just repeating that same word, so it's kind of mesmerising, and it becomes, as you say, um, ritualistic. Um, I know that people have, have talked about this poem in terms of the Hon Fort and the kind of um, um, 
Haitian voodoo religious um, ceremony, and that, that the sense there is it is a collective experience. So it's not just the performer who's part of the poem, it's the audience too, the listener as well. This was my first time reading the poem and then listening to the performance. And I didn't know what to do with it when I read it without the sound, without, the, it be, without receiving it as a sound poem. And I think it's not enough. It is not enough to read it. The text is not enough. And there's a meaning that reveals itself in the sound. And it does build up in, into something like a trance. So yes, you have to lean in and listen to him read in the beginning, but then at the end, you're, we're all together in this right, this linguistic event. Huda, I want to turn us to this passage of stanzas, which begins, I must be given words. First, I must be given words to shape my name. I must be given words to refashion futures. I must be given words so that the bees in my blood, et cetera, will make things, will make nature, will make flowers, will make birds, will make sky. Okay, can you get us started on this? It's a, I, what's that verb form is difficult. I must be given. Yes, you're right. The, this I must be given words is a, a counterpoint in the piece. The, the verb I must be given words somehow brings... Uh, underscores the idea that this is a poem about something's being done to language here, but it also announces a language of not creation but recreation, reformulation of the world of the world, but also the English language. I'm very interested in what happens to in, English. Thank you, Huda. In in the idea of a name being shaped is implicit a sounding, right? to shape the mouth and the voice a certain way. So one wonders, who's doing the giving? Is it the poetic act? That's Is it the tradition, the oral tradition that's given? Ambrose, what are your thoughts about this? I must be given words. Well, I'm, I'm actually interested in this idea that you brought up about shape. And he says, I must be given words to shape my name to the, sil- to the syllables of trees. Um... And I'm trying to think about what he, what that kind of shape suggests, um, the the syllables of trees, that there's something um, that's beyond capture, um, that's beyond the sort of um, market capitalism, materialism that he's talking about all throughout the beginning of the poem. And then he turns to the common. He turns to nature. He turns to trees and sky and shared space that is beyond containment and says, I want my name to take that shape, to feel like that, to be as open as that. And that's really powerful. Jacob, there's a cause and effect that's implicit here. I must be given words so that. So something about the forming of the words of the poem, speaking them, writing them, leads him to a making, which of course is poesis, which is poetry. Can you connect those two things? Because, you know, not surprisingly, the next uh, paragraph or section of this conversation, I hope we'll get to how we get from semicolon to semicolony, Hmm. right? There's something about being given words that's affecting his understanding right down to the structural level of the language and the logic of the language, the semicolon connecting two things of sometimes of cause and effect. And that is a semicolonialism. So we're going to mm-hmm. have to get there. But before we get there, mm-hmm. what about this 
this idea of what um, being given words leads to a poetic making, which leads him back to his place, his nature. So it's, I mean, the, the poem as a whole, and I don't want to over-anticipate your next question, but obviously the poem at the whole is about the struggle for words and speech, the inability to speak um, in, a, in a situation of both colonialism and then a post-colonial situation, which is also a situation of neo-colonialism. Um, and what's, I think, one of the things that's, that's, that's quite beautiful about this poem, the way it's formed, is that the struggle... The inability to speak, the stuttering, uh, failure of speech, it, it, it is not. In fact, produces the rhythm, produces the, the starting point for, for the words, the for the speech. And the poetry. But in terms of answering your question about the kind of grammatical structure of that, I must be given words, the poem ends with this appeal to the Igba, right, the Haitian uh, god originating from West Africa, the god of crossroads, the god who kind of holds the, the, the gateway, if you like, to the spirit world. So in a sense, this is a poem that calls upon those powers. So the, so the poetic power in the word comes from outside the speaker. So then, therefore, I must be given the words rather than I'm going to create them myself. So possibly not given words is complicated. Hmm. Not given by hmm. a linguistic power that forces it upon me, but by the gods, possibly, mm. by, so by this, my I own th- oral tradition. Yeah, I think this is the moment of shift in the poem, right, right. from the colonial and neocolonial situation. Yeah. Huda, before we get to semicolons and semicolonies, uh, let's pick up on Jacob's comment about stuttering and um, not being able to say, this is an obvious question, but go anywhere with it, please. The, the opening is really very deliberate and isn't able to say what it wants to say. Exactly, yeah. It's very deliberate and it's arresting. So it's the effect of it on the reader is that you're struggling too to see the poem launch, but it doesn't. And he amplifies that in the performance where he adds more, it, it, it is not enough. So the, the way I'm reading this, and I'm, I think I'm going to probably give away your next point. That's we have okay. To That's arrive, what this is all about. We have about. to arrive yeah, at how <laughs> this is a poem about surviving freedom. It's not enough to be free, what happens afterwards. And it's a poem also about uh, colonial and post-colonial conditions and neo-colonial conditions. And I'm very interested in, this relates to some of the work I do on the fact that this is written in English, but it's English that's, alienated from itself, it sounds like something else. And I must be given words, yes, by something that sits outside of this body of this language. And we see it at the end being infiltrated by legba, by words that, you know, if you're an English speaker, they throw you off. They send you off looking for their meaning. Uh, So, yeah. Ambrose, thoughts after that? Thank you, Huda. Um... Yeah, I'm thinking about this line, where is the kingdom Mm. of the word? I don't think that it's quite that there's an absence of language, but he's drawing this very clear connection between the force of colonization as manifested through a particular arrangement of language that he Mm. finds himself entrapped in. And so 
when he, when he says it's not just enough to be free of the whips of the principalities and the powers, he's talking about it's not enough to be outside of the plantation or to have formally gained independence. But we're talking about a kind of investment of the imaginary, of the colonial imaginary, that determines how we see ourselves, how we name ourselves, how we name and see and relate to each other. And so he's saying beyond these kind of material realities, how do I get to the heart of this thing, which is with the word? And then, like you both so beautifully sort of gestured to at the end, he turns to another set of words, another culture, another sort of um, whole world of relation by exiting the English language and going into another space. Jacob, start us off on, let's let's enumerate and accumulate the markers of the post-colonial situation. I mean, the poem is very, uh, for lack of a better word, very poetic. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Dumb word. This is poem talk, of course. Be. But but then there's the United Fruit Company, yeah. you know, proper nouns. And then there's flying to Miami and there are things in Miami. Can we accumulate some of those references? You want to start? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we need to remember that this poem um, is in the third part of Islands, the, the third part of, of Brathwaite's great trilogy, first trilogy of poems, The Arrivance. Um, and the tr- trilogy has a three-part structure. So we, we move from the, the first part, Rites of Passage, which is about kind of discovering a kind of, um, um, a kind of pan-African-American um, poetics, which spreads across right, the United States and the Caribbean and so forth. Then we move in masks um, to West Africa and Brathwaite's journey there. And then Islands the, the part, Islands is about the return to the Caribbean. Brathwaite had lived in Ghana, uh, going back to the Caribbean and then encountering the situation of immediate post-independence Caribbean, these co- countries like Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago coming independent in the early mid-60s. Um, and Barbados here, I think, is perhaps the particular reference here, his home, his home island, his home place. Um, um, and these countries are becoming independent, but but they've given up, you know, the British, the red, white, and blue of the of the British colonialism. And yet we have the red, white, and blue of of, of kind of American neocolonialism, which comes um, also uh, in the form of the kind of imported goods, the the tourists coming in from um, uh, from Miami, and also the new post-independence leaders who are kind of enjoying the luxuries on the backs of of a people who remain. Uh, poor and are not being helped out of of the situation of poverty. Huda, the the refrain, it's not enough to, it's not enough to, is powerful. Um, and it's relatively easy to understand when it's, a not en- it's not enough to pray to Barclays bankers on the telephone. Okay, we get the position there, what it, what it means. And, and it's a little easier, but not totally easy. Uh, it's not enough to be able to fly to Miami. It's not enough to be free enough to go to Miami and think of Miami as sort of a, you know, Caribbean-ish place where I can make a transition to North America. Okay. But it's not enough to tinkle to work on a bicycle bell when hell crackles and burns in the 14-inch screen, et cetera. Can you help us with that? I love that, but yeah. I don't know what to do with it. I love that too. I mean, one mark of of colonial of colonialism is this monstrous TV set that appears in this stanza, and it's like juxtaposed to the to the bicycle bell, which makes it even more sinister. I think 
the refrain, it is not enough, it is not enough, like halts and delays and halts and delays, and then he drops on you something like this, the Jap, the Jap constructed, and so on, until the rhinocerously nubed, cancerously tubed. I don't know what to do with it, but it, I know how I feel about it, and I think that's how, how do you feel about it? I, I know exactly how heavy this t- television set is and how how threatening it is and what connections it makes and how invasive it is. Jacob, you're lighting up. You have something to say about I, this I bicycle belt. I want to belt. jump into this. I mean, maybe because I'm kind of obsessed with media, but it's, you know, it's speaking out to television and later on we get the short wave radio, you know. It's not enough to pray to Barclays bankers on the telephone, to Jesus Christ by shortwave radio. Um so those are the the kind of modern media, the radio and the television, are the means of kind of maintaining a colonial system even after these countries are, are you know become officially independent. Uh, and if we think about language in particular, which uh, Amber Rose was rightly emphasising before, uh, Braithwaite said it was uh, in language that the slave was most successfully um, entrapped. And it was in language that the slave most successfully rebelled. Uh, so I think that's the kind of crux of it here. The language they're getting on television and radio is the language yeah. of standard American or British English. But that's not their language. So that's the perfect setup, Amber Rose, to thinking about the relationship between the semicolon and the semicolony. I think Jacob made a point that is both incredibly critically brilliant and also very obvious, which is that's what this poem is about. It is trying to find a poetics that will resist the standardization of language and remove all the spirit from it and all the stuttering from it. But he makes it really clear that there's a relation between those two semis. Do you want to take a start and then we'll turn to Huda? I love that line. Um, and I love that when you that reading the line and hearing the line, something slightly different happens, um, which is related to the line drag of the dragon of the dragon. Just reading the line, uh, it it's just that Y is tagged on. But when you hear it, there's a slight difference in pronunciation that I think is really interesting. Um, but. So we're talking about, so I don't think that he was in Barbados at the time of writing this, but I know that, uh, or I'm fairly certain that Barbados independence came in 1966. Is that right? Okay, I think so. Um, and so this this book was published in 69, just three years after. So that immediate relationship to just coming out of colonization uh, formally into a post-colony, but still still feeling the entrapment, still feeling the dependence, still recognizing all of these really terribly entangled kind of systems that keep uh, colonies tethered to these global powers um, is part of what that semicolon is trying to capture. It's both... It's it's trying to be a period. It's trying to be the the end of a moment and the beginning of something new. And at the same time, it's a tethering. It's a continuation. It's sort of a a breath or a blip in a kind of long continual sentence of colonization in the Caribbean. Exactly. Yeah. And we see reading this in the moment we're in today, thinking of events happening around the world and all these. Uh, 
semi-independences like like my country in Lebanon. So it's this tether that you're talking about, this need for a full stop to be free and to really reconcile with your your freedom is to have a full stop, to end the, or to cut that tether that holds you to a power that still controls you, even if invisible. So yes, there are many peoples who live in semi-colonies but imagine themselves independent. And this is the tension of this line. There's a leap that needs to be made. And this is why it's not enough. It is not enough to be free. There's work to be done. Wow. I feel like we've just accomplished a lot. Uh, Jacob, let me just turn the screw just a little bit more and get your response. So only in a poem can, not in a political tract, not in a speech, only in a poem or in a song can someone say that the semicolon and the semicolony are the same word. The only difference is the why. Only in a poem can you stick a semicolon at the end of that line. Hmm and follow it with the most powerful, radical, revolutionary statements. Fling me a stone. Not I am going to throw a stone at mm. this edifice or this glass house of poetry or whatever it is. Fling me a stone, agency reversed again, that will confound the void. Find me the rage and I will raise the colony. And that all follows the semicolon. This is great, mm. and only a poem can do it. All right, you've been set up. What, what do you want to say? Well, first of all, I love that reading of the semicolon, semicolony. I've always had a slightly different reading of it, rather than the desire here being for a full stop. For me, the semicolon is, is a mark, you know, something we do not we do not pronounce, a semicolon, or any like punctuation like a full stop. So the semicolon is the silence. Invisible structure. The silence. So yeah. if you're a semicolony or a colony, you're still you're silent. And this is a search for speech. So it's a it's about kind of escaping that silence, which is also the stuttering, the it is not. Um, I, what I think the poem here is suggesting is that you need a kind of revolution of language in order to achieve true independence. And therefore we need to go to poetry. And fling me, find me, fill me, hmm. fill me with words. Is So there is a hierarchy. First, there is the stone we throw. Hmm. We are in the streets and we hmm. throw the stone at the people who, and you, you're ta you know, let the, let the uh, record show that we're talking at a time where in Lebanon, particularly in Beirut, people have decided that the corruption is too much to take and that their overlords are claiming they, that this is a self-governing situation, but ultimately it isn't, and they are throwing stones, right? But then the second on the hierarchy is discovering rage, and the third, when you get to the top for him, are the words, because the mm. words will be the most destructive mm -mm. thing of structures of belief, existing belief. What I'd like to do is listen again, the four of us, to the opening, and allow each of you to say something because if you hadn't read the poem, as I bet the people, many of the people at the Bowery Poetry Club hadn't, not that the book wasn't, it was published by Oxford, and it was widely available and very well known, but still, I imagine there were people in that audience and probably people in our audience who are hearing this and not knowing where this it is going to go or what this it is. So I wonder if we could kind of wipe our memories of the experience of the written text and say what this sounds like. It, it, it. 
it is not it 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 is not it is not it is not enough it is not enough to be free of the red of the red of the red white and blue of the drag of the dragon Amber Rose, what do you hear? I asked you this at the beginning, so I guess I'm asking again. It's a moving referent, that it. Uh, it is destabilized with each repetition. But in that repetition, it feels so expansive. I almost, I, okay, I'm imagining his embodiment. And I'm imagining him almost with eyes closed, like shaking his head. Um, and that kind of it, like the whole world, this whole situation, this whole thing that we're all in, the it gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it's like this whole, everything at play here is not working for me. Thank you. And one of the things that's great about the recording is you can hear him drumming too, right? So the drumming is part of that performance too. Um, and I think with... The at the beginning, as you as you write, Ember Rose, the way in which it expands to kind of encompass the audience and and the whole world. Um, it's a poem he'd written, you know, decades earlier, and yet it's open to new versions. Um, partly because of the way it's written, this it can go on as long as the audience will allow you, will hold their attention. And he does right? improvise. Yeah, and he improvises. He, ta- he has more, more its than they're in the published version of it, right? He expands it out. Um, so so um, um, that's one of the things that I hear very much in, in that performance, that he can extend that line. And, and what he's very clearly signaling, which he didn't um, always do in some of the earlier recordings I have of this poem, um, is really emphasizing the drumbeat of that it. For Brathwaite, at the centre of of the kind of language as it can, of the English as it was spoken in the Caribbean and, and languages that spoken in the Caribbean, its connection to West Africa was through the drum and the rhythm of the language. Um, so we hear that very clearly here. And the wonderful thing I think about this it here is it comes back at the end, as the at at bon at bon so the it becomes the at. Um, So that what was the kind of statement of being silenced becomes the invocation of the gods. But there's also a phase before that, which is the I. So I can't help but think that the it, which grows and grows and is variable, there's a stage where it's replaced by the I, which is also a a beat of the drum before we arrive at Atibon, which is now speech as opposed to silence. So there's this I that has to fling and has to rage and has to occupy and invade even if in words before we arrive at, at the speech at the end. Oh, Huda, that's amazing. Because when we finally get to the I, that I, I am not, I am not, I weren't, I wasn't not, I wasn't, uh, be, uh, it becomes I must be given words to shape my name. So in a way, the poem begins prior to the... Um, discovery of the self through the language of the words being uttered. So in the beginning was percussion, and then the identity is found. And interestingly, the identity doesn't in the 
more likely in a North American poetic tradition, the self goes out and makes the words, but here the words are given, mm-hmm. right? And there's this clearing before. Like you have to say what is not and what's not enough. And so the poem begins at I must be given words. But there's work that needs to be done before that. I right. like that. Like a warming up in a way. And that's, uh, again, implicitly what's happening with this poem. If, if I had been at the Bowery Poetry Club, I'd think, oh, he's getting ready. He's warming up. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, he's setting up this negation in order to find something that can fill the the void. Ambrose? I think I just wanted to tag on to what you were saying because I think that's such an important little pivot where maybe in a uh, North American or, you know, Western, uh, uh, more squarely kind of Western European uh, tradition, it might go from negation to this very central I, uh, to this acting and doing I. But even when the I arrives, it is in it is with another. Um, it's with another f- f- who was flinging fling me the stone, give me the words. And so the I appears, but but only in in relation to another. Um, and that other is this Haitian Loa or to this Haitian Orisha. Um, and and that's so important that he doesn't just kind of isolate into this all powerful speaking and powerful and you know whatever. I'd like to for us to go around and each of us say something else that you meant to say today but didn't didn't have a chance to yet. So it doesn't have to be in sequence. Any thoughts? Who wants to start? You all look like you have plenty to say. Jacob, you want to start? One thing I'd like to say is that. Um, and this, if you listen to this poem, you should also go and download and listen to the whole reading, to the Segway reading, because what's quite extraordinary about that reading um, is the way, as he says in his very brief introduction, he's going to read the poem, so they segue one into the next, playing, of course, on the title of the reading series. But he very carefully thinks about how the poems work one to the other. So after this poem, we move um, from islands in the third part from this poem in in islands to uh, the making of the drum, which is a poem in the second part with a kind of West African setting with the tradition and the particular Akan um, drumming uh, tradition with this invocation of the drum. And what you get then too is the way in which the the sounds of one poem segue into another. So the atibon, the bon of that becomes the con 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 of the drum in the in the next poem, the reading. So that the the rhythmic sound then is is very clearly drawn from from the Caribbean, from Barbados, say, and and from Haiti in particular, across the Atlantic to West Africa through that sonic connection. Thank you very much. Amber Rose, you have a final thought? My th- final thought is sort of related to uh, related to this last point that was made about taking from different places. And I think that throughout the throughout the poem, these sort of material references that are made can cite diasporic, black diasporic experience in kind of all of the places that Brathwaite has now been traversing and studying and working. And even though he's speaking from a very kind of, um, he is speaking from a singular voice, but he's also speaking to a larger black diasporic experience uh, that he does so beautifully. And 
I guess I also just want to make a point about this last section. Um, and I say this humbly as someone who does not study Haitian Creole or Vundu. Uh, but this, this, the translation, what I gathered from the translation of that final line is open the barrier for me. And from what I read about uh, Papa Legba is that he is this sort of um, intermediary between gods and people, um, but that his name is evoked at the beginning and at the end of ceremonies precisely because he is this kind of intermediary character um, or inter intermediary figure, excuse me. Um, so for it to be at the end of this poem, but at the beginning of the reading is another kind of circular performative motion that's happening that I think is, is just really beautifully done. Thank you. Huda, final thought? Final thought, many thoughts, actually. When I read this, it caught me in a very vulnerable moment. As you mentioned, events happening in Beirut, but also events happening in Gaza and the constantly unfolding Kurdish tragedy. So thinking of uh, voices who speak against power or hegemony from the margins and who also are launched from silence, from being silenced, I couldn't help but think of two names while reading this. The first is Mahmoud Darwish, of course, uh, and especially in that part, I must be given words to shape my name to the syllable of trees. It re reminded me of, of, a, of, a, of a move or a shift he always makes when trying to express you know, the experience of someone who doesn't legally exist, who's not recognized by official entities, but he always identifies as trees do, or valleys or streams, you don't ask them for identity cards. That's my identity. That's something that comes up a lot in Darisha's work. But the other point that I couldn't brush away is the work of someone like uh, Selim Barakat, who's a Kurd but writes in Arabic, and who does something very similar. He invades the Arabic language, which is his colonizer, and he like, defamiliarizes it the way... Uh, exactly as happens in this poem. And by the end of it, a barrier is open. And this barrier is a barrier between what is Arabic and what is not. So that there's something inhabits Arabic now, something that's unsettling and threatening, but that's making a space for itself by force. And I think this poem d does some of that as well. Ah, oh, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, my final thought is sort of basic, um, but it falls under the category of something I wanted to say that I didn't have a chance to. So anything fits, even if it's very obvious. Um, I just want to point out the contrast between, let us say, what Miami looks like. Um, it's not enough. You, it, being able to fly to Miami is not freedom. It's not enough. And there you have the skyscrapers and the excavation of seashore sands a different kind of beach for hotels and casinos and so forth. Um, and you have other you have bulldozing, bulldozing god squatters from their tunes. A lot of destruction and the landscape is affected. When we get to the, the I, the self, and words that enable the self to make like a poem or poet makes, we get flowers, flocks of birds, sky, heaven, and heaven that is open to the thunderstone and volcanoes which make the land. I mean, in a sense, volcanoes create the unfolding land and volcanoes are an unfolding. 
it's really there's a very pastoral quality to the poem once it starts to develop the eye from the it that is not enough. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Ambrose, you're looking at me like you came here ready to recommend. Did you? I did come ready to recommend. I just ordered uh, at my local independent bookstore uh, R. Erica Doyle's Proxy that came out recently. And I don't know what's inside of it yet because I haven't received it, but it comes with rave reviews and I'm very excited. So read along with me. And if Erica Doyle is listening, I've been wanting to have Erica come to do a poem talk. So come, give, Erica. Us, give us a call. <laughs> Thank you. Huda, do you have uh, some Gathering Paradise? Well, this is something that is, it's a book that came out and we had the author here at Penn recently. It's a book called Breaking Broken English. And I think it speaks to what happens here, the event, the linguistic event that happens. And it's a book by Michelle Hartman. It recently came out and it studies, you know, how Arab American writers break English in, in order to occupy it and introduce dialects and like words in, in italics and transliterations in order to, you know, make a space for themselves. Fantastic. Thank you. Jacob, gather some paradise for us. I'd just like, since I've come all the way from New Zealand, to mention a young uh, New Zealand writer from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, her name is Tay Tibbal, and she has a book that um, came came out in 2019, Po Uka Hangatas. Um, actually, it came out, I think, 2018, Po Uka uh, It's a great uh, book um, that is about a young Māori writer's kind of journey for language and identity um, in Aotearoa, New Zealand today. So you should check it out. Thank you. Well, uh, I'm going to gather paradise, and uh, uh, people listening to this can't get the fact that I'm saying paradise is sitting to my right, um, and that's Huda. And uh, if people will go to their favorite search engine and they will search Kelly Writer's House Poetry Unbanned, was that the title of the event? You'll go back to that... Well, we've had a lot of awful moments, but let's just say really awful moment in, I want to say, February of 2017, when the current presidential administration executive branch um, essentially banned uh, Muslims from traveling to the U.S. And Huda here helped organize an event, and it was a very powerful event, and we recorded it, of course, and you can listen to it. And you can watch it as well. It was a very powerful moment and more or less spontaneous. Well, that's all the semicolons and semicolonies we have time for on Poem Talk Today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing at the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests. Amber Rose, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Al. Jacob, thank you for coming. Thanks so much. All for this way, me. and Huda, as always. Thank you. Al. And I'd also like to thank uh, Poem Talks director and engineer today, Zach Cardner, and to Poem Talks editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. And a shout out to Nathan and Elizabeth Light for their very generous support of Poem Talk. 
In our next episode, Jess Schollenberger and two editor-writer podcasters from Slate, Stephen Metcalf and June Thomas, will join me to talk about two short poems by Eileen Miles. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of Poem Talk.